<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or download our new and improved smartphone app, or just visit the website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. While you're there, check out our new business news podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin, China's authority. Source for business and financial news. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from Gold Corn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is that godless blasphemer and notorious heathen Jeremy Goldcorn, editor in chief of SubChina. How are you, Jeremy? Get off my land, Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Jeremy, it is true that you are a heathen. And uh, actually, <laughs> neither of us really professes any kind of religious belief unless uh, some people might. You might count my particular brand of liberal humanism or your vintage Hu Jintao era scientific socialism as, as forms of religion. <laughs> <laughs> the the subject of religion, though, is, of course, one that we are both keenly interested in. And I, I think you can't be interested in human history without a recognition of and a real appreciation for the, the role that religious belief has played. I mean, sure, also all the, the woe and the, the horror that it has wrought and the injustices that it's helped to perpetuate, but also... You know, the undeniable contributions that it's made, the the music and the art that it's inspired and the uh, consolation that it's brought to the afflicted and to the grieving, the bereaved. Uh, and, of course, all the comforts of ritual observance. Um, well, well, as a disciple of Christopher Hitchens, I think that's actually just bollocks. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, of course you are. Well, uh, sure. I mean, I obviously have my own deep misgivings about religion. But when it comes to China, there is no better writer who has been dedicating his full measure of understanding about religious belief in its many manifestations than our dear friend Ian Johnson, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has, of course, been a guest on Seneca many times in the past. Today, he joins us here in the studio to talk uh, about his new book on this topic, The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao, which was finally published earlier this month. In its pages, Ian tells the stories of the faithful with great sympathy and in terrific, terrific prose. Uh, he has a, an amazing eye for detail, and the reportage uh, ranges across many locales uh, all across China over a number of years. He is fast emerging as the Reza Aslan of the China-watching world. I don't know, Ian, how do you uh, feel I don't about, know about that? that but I'll I'll take it. <laughs> take that, take that. Uh, Ian, man, welcome back to Seneca, and, and so wonderful to have you here in Durham. Bless you, my children. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's a great talk you gave last night. <laughs> so, Ian, as you uh, are already aware, I'm sure Kaiser and I are going to go after you at some point in this conversation as to why neither of us necessarily thinks that the return of religion after Mao is, is a good thing. But first, <laughs> let's talk about your book. It's got a very interesting plan based on the Chinese lunisolar calendar. Can you talk about this approach and why you decided on it? 
Well, part of it was, um, yeah, so the book is divided up by the seasons, and China has these solar terms. There are 24 of them. There are many seasons of roughly two weeks, a little bit more than two weeks, um, and they are a traditional way of dividing up the calendar. Around sometime in the 2000s, you could say roughly around 2010 or so, I, I began to notice that these terms were making a big comeback. There were magazines uh, like Sanlian that were devoting special issues to them. You could get apps. You could get screensavers. People began to close off emails by saying, you know, a, a happy winter solstice or a peaceful winter solstice to you. And I began to think this was a an interesting metaphor for the return of these traditional ideas and quasi-spiritual thoughts that um, are, are taking hold in, in China again. When, when did you take this from? I mean, no, it's interesting because I, I do remember suddenly hearing people say Li Qiu, Jingtian Shi Li Qiu. Yeah, I mean, I think like with a lot of things, artists got on it early. And I remember talking uh, to some gallerists who said in, in the late 1990s, some artists had come up with a series of paintings like on Jingzhe, the awakening of uh, the insects. Uh, right. um, but I think it really sort of began to take off. And I I, I can't say for sure, but around, say, 2010. Yeah, yeah, trend. yeah. That, that accords with my, my experience. So in a way, by having a year, you can go through one year, even though the book jumps forward and back in time, but roughly it's anchored in one year starting with the with Chinese New Year and then ending the spring of the following year. That way we can see some... Of the, cere- of the ceremonies, and, and you also can juxtapose different faiths. You have the traditional calendar, but you also have, say, Christianity and some interesting parallels, um, like in the springtime and so on. Yeah, I think it was a terrific plan for the book, a very cool way to structure it, and, and a good way to also introduce the whole, my gosh, I mean, I think it, it really dates back very, very far to maybe Huang Lao Taoism, this, this idea of, of appropriate behavior in a given season. That was a big part of, of early Chinese religious life, right? Yeah. Very cool. Ian, um, could you um, just talk a little bit more about the specific nature of the Chinese lunar solar calendar? Because I, I don't yeah. think it's generally known that there's a solar component to it. I mean, people you know, talk right. about Lunar New Year. And you're right, you're right, Jeremy. Uh, but in fact, the lunar calendar is moderated in some way in the traditional Chinese calendar by the goings-on of the sun. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Because the, the lunar calendar is, of course, based on the moon's orbit around the Earth. And there are r- roughly, I think, 29 and a half days. So um, if you think, say, 30 days times 12, you have 12 months, that's 360 days. So you go out of whack. Actually, the... the they align every 19 years, the metonic cycle, right? Well, it's actually... So the Chinese add in a, a, a leap month right. every four years, roughly, three three or four years. So they call it a runyue, and that compensates because it goes. it's off by about 10 days a year, a year eight, right. eight days a year. So all of that's... Uh, it's one way of, of looking at time, the moon. It is a big, bright object, and it's... Uh, of course, a lot of civilizations have looked at the moon and have had lunar calendars, but it's not that useful for agriculture because agriculture, you need to know precisely when the earth is warming. You can't be off by eight or 10 days a year. You may right. miss things. So they began to look at how the 
Well, we would, similar to the Western idea of astrology, uh-huh. the houses, so you have the the constellations moving behind the sun, and it looks like the, the sun is moving through the constellations or through the stars. That's not actually true. It's us that's moving around the sun, but the effect is the same. It's the relationship of the earth to the sun. Right. And that's roughly, we move around the sun roughly one degree every day. So that works out pretty day, pretty good. We have 364 days, and we have 360 degrees, so it, it's quite accurate for... 365. <laughs> 365 days. Yeah. Yeah, right. 364 and a quarter. 365, yeah, whatever. 365 and a quarter. Yeah. So uh, so you're off a little bit, but not as much as with the solar calendar. Right, right, right. Um, So that became, these solar terms were a supplement to the lunar. They're based on a 360-day year, though, still. So they're still off a bit. Uh, Yeah, so they're not exactly, uh, but they, they 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 work out. Exactly. So it's a little bit more than it's a little more than a, a degree a day. So uh-huh. one point something. Some of you listeners may be wondering about this mellifluous voice that you're hearing. Ian Ian has a lovely speaking voice, uh, and I actually I'm a big fan of audiobooks. And after your book came out, uh, I noticed I had a couple of long car drives ahead of me, and I, I was really wanting to finish your book. So I, I noticed that it was an audible audiobook version, and that you actually narrate it yourself. I mean, because one thing that I have assiduously avoided is buying. China-themed audio books that are narrated by some guy who can't pronounce Chinese because I mean, it's just hearing them butcher is, is just is awful. But I, I, I couldn't believe how good. I mean, you are very, very good at reading audio books. I mean, you kind of have a, a career my, as an audio book yeah, narrator. It's my next profession when I yeah. leave China. No, I, I, they offered a couple of people who could be readers, and they, they, they showed them. And, and one was a sort of Midwestern guy, but he couldn't speak any Chinese. <laughs> and I thought I didn't want him to say Jingzhe or whatever instead yeah. of Jingzhe or whatever. It just would sort of annoy me or the names of my characters and so on. And the other was a Chinese American woman. She would have done a a good job, I think. But then I thought, you know, I could do this myself. So I took a lot of time and I had a lot of help. How how long did it take? It took over 30 hours to... It's like 17 hours the book 17 hours. That's not not too bad then. It's not too bad, but uh, there were a lot of retakes and retakes and retakes. Um, did you go into a studio to do this? or I did. I had a lot of help from our dear friend Anthony Kuhn, oh. the NPR correspondent in Beijing. I went to his offices in the Senlitun diplomatic compound and locked myself in a little closet that he has as his sound studio at certain times of the day because there's also an Italian kindergarten nearby. <laughs> and when those kids get out, the doors are banging and people are stomping up and downstairs. So I tended to go in early on Saturdays and Sundays or evenings sort of after 8 o'clock at night and record. And he was really nice, um, uploaded all the video, all the audio, and uh, so I owe him one or two. So let's get back to the book itself, Ian. Uh, so the Li family, the Miaofengshan pilgrimage groups and others uh, that you write about are representatives of the Chinese religion. They worship deities like Our Lady of the Azure Clouds. Uh, can you help us to define what you call the Chinese religion? How do the Chinese themselves talk about it? Since some you know, words that we translate from English, religion, zongjiao, and superstition, misin, as you point out, are actually uh, you know, imported from Japan. So isn't Chinese religion just a grab bag of superstitions? Is there, <laughs> and is there anything wrong with the terminology that people have used in the past, such as religious Taoism or folk religion? 
Well, I, th- I think the problem is that in the past, and whenever, whatever you want to say, I use in this book, I say traditional China. And then at the end of, toward the end of the book, I'm, I also sort of talk about this a bit. There was right. no time in the past when all the traditions were whole and complete. And, and so it's a, it's a bit of an artificial construct. But say 150 years ago or something, even 100 years ago, most people in China didn't think of worship, that they were worshiping one particular religion. You would have had Buddhist monks, Taoist priests at big temples who would say, I'm Buddhist, I'm Taoist. But the vast majority of people worshipped at the local temple or the local temples in their village or their neighborhood, and they didn't make this distinction between Buddhism and Taoism or folk religion. These were just things that you did. They were practice, uh, a, a kind of a daily part of your daily life, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and not something that you... Th- theology also doesn't play a big role in Chinese religion. Western religion has this idea that you have to have these... Uh, um, these concepts that are provable using the tools of Greek logic and that if you can't do that then it's sort of superstitious but I think most religions around the world actually including Christianity have a huge spectrum of belief starting with um, the very intellectualized forms of religion um, down to if you think of Catholicism for example you have St. Augustine but you also have people who simply have rosary beads and say hail Mary full of grace Um, so I, I, Chinese religion was really no different in that sense. There was people, there were people who read the Tao Te Ching and s- studied it carefully and read the Buddhist sutras. And then there were a lot of people who simply lit incense on the right days and, and hoped that they would get children or prosperity or a peaceful life. So that was it. And then it was only when the West came in with these ideas of religion has to be defined in a certain way that uh, Chinese then began to say, oh, okay, so is this Buddhism or is this Taoism and, and what about the rest of it? And that's where we got get into this mess of defining things and even today, when you ask Chinese people, uh, what do you believe in? A lot of people will say, well, I, d- I don't really know. Or if they have to self-identify, most people will say Buddhism because it seems kind of sort of easier to define. Right. And and this leads to actually uh, some, some problems when people have done surveys and, and tried to ascertain levels of religiosity uh, in China. Uh, you, you point out in your book, and I, mean, I think we've all seen statistics on the number of supposed atheists in China, uh, and they tend to very much overstate this, I would think. I mean, actually, I would, I would, I would say that it's been very rare for me to encounter a Chinese person who qualifies, in my mind, as an atheist in mm. in, in any way. They almost inevitably espouse some belief that would would disqualify them. But you you also note that when these surveys are done, the phrases and questions about about religion are couched in terms of say zongjiao. But then, when, you know, and then people don't say that they subscribe to a zongjiao. But if you ask them about xinyang, about belief, you find sort of much higher levels of, of reported religiosity. Yeah, yeah. And the best questions are very concrete questions uh-huh. about what you do and if you believe. So there's a, a survey uh, by by two British sociologists, Yao. Yao and Batam, and they wrote a book, and they asked people concrete questions like, "Did a fo, so like a spirit, uh-huh. have an a Buddha, impact, yeah. or a Buddha yeah, have an impact in, in your life over the past twelve months?" And this mimics questions that they ask in the West: uh, "Did God Angels have an influence, you, or, or yeah, have uh, a, you in the past year?" And there you get sort of twenty-five to thirty percent of Chinese will say yes, um, or do you believe in bowing, uh, karmic retribution? Uh, and there you get a huge percentage of people, something like. 75% of people will say, yes, I believe in that. Now, that doesn't mean they're all religious, right. um, but it means that these concepts
concepts are much more widespread. Jeremy, do you know atheists in China? Yes, I do. I mean, I have friends and in, indeed my uh, relatives in China <laughs> are avowed yeah, My father-in-law, my father-in-law is, uh, yeah. uh, you know, will have no truck with religion or superstition. Is he a Lao Ganbu? Uh, no, he's not. I mean, he, he, he was a kind of a white collarish worker at a state-owned engineering company in Beijing. Yeah, my, my father-in-law, also no truck with religion, except, you know, insofar as he will humor his very devoutly Buddhist wife and go to temple and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, he, he sniggers about it behind her back. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he has no, no connection to the party whatsoever. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Kaiser. I got my package from our new sponsor, and I assume you did too? Indeed. Which means you no longer have an excuse for that unruly riot that's sprouting from the whole lower half of your goddamn face, because you are now the proud owner of a Harry's Razor. I mean, this whole thing got started because you lost your old overpriced razor in the first place, right? Well, that is true. I, you know, when we moved, I lost my razor, so I decided just to grow a beard. <laughs> but, I mean, you haven't seen me since I've got this uh, Harry's razor. I, I haven't shaved the beard off, but I've used it to tidy up uh, the unruly riots. Pictures, Jeremy. I need photographic evidence of this of this tidying up. Uh, is Faye happy now, or does she still wish you just shaved the whole damn thing off? I have no comment. I'll... <laughs> 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 I I am loving my Harry's razor. I have gone back to that little goatee thing that I had when you saw me. I mean, I shaved it off for a little while. Anyway, the trimmer blade at the end of the razor is absolutely indispensable. I, I just don't know how I've lived with that one. Uh, the thing is great. It's great. It's uh, it's a nice heavy uh, tool that feels uh, you know good in your hand, really well exactly. made. Exactly. Um, and cheaper than uh, paying a horrible multinational corporation lots of money for bits of cheap plastic and steel. Exactly, that's unconscionable. You know, even though I'm currently uh, sporting a beard, I urge you to get a great shave at a fair price, like the over apparently three million guys who have already switched over to Harry's. Yes, indeed, and claim your free trial offer from Harry's today, a $13 value for free when you sign up. You only need to cover the shipping costs. That includes a fine-looking weighted razor with five precision-engineered blades and a lubricating strip, as well as the trimmer blade that Kaiser mentioned, and some rich uh, lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Yes, a travel blade cover. Get your free trial, just go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash subchina right now. That's harrys.com slash subchina. Definitely check them out. So wow. now we're all sort of coming clean about our, our family's beliefs. And Kaiser <laughs> and I have started out this podcast by indicating that we are pretty much big fans of secularism and both uh, fairly hardened atheists. Uh, Ian, perhaps in the interest of full disclosure, can I ask what were some of the beliefs and assumptions that you took with you to this project? And in terms of religion, I mean, uh, you were re- raised as a Protestant, right? Um, so how would you characterize your beliefs and what effect do you think they had on your uh, telling of the stories of the religious people of China? Well, I think my beliefs, so I did grow up in a, you could say a fairly religious household. We went to church every Sunday. My mother was a Sunday school teacher. I was uh, active in the church. I was a, an altar boy. So it was an Anglican church, oh, Anglican. Okay. Uh, very okay. similar to Catholicism, right? right. right. 
papacy without the pope um, and here Episcopalianism but sort of high church Episcopal uh, cross bearer did all that stuff went to confirmation class um, I don't go to church regularly now um, and I don't believe in the exclusivity of the Abrahamic faiths that sort of say you know, my way or the highway either uh-huh. you believe in Jesus or you're going to hell I can't believe uh, if there is a God I can't really believe that um, that he would consign six billion people to hell on the on the planet so or or she so i I, i'm pretty open to all different faiths um i don't think they're necessarily good or bad to me it's it's just a part it's been a part of human existence for a long time it's something that i find really really interesting because of my background probably Um, but I certainly when I went to China I was interested even in 84 I was interested in what people believed in but I didn't expect people to be Protestant or anything Mm. like that or I didn't want them to be either I thought oh people will be Buddhist or Taoist, and that'll be really cool to see that. Um, so that's, I guess, I'm, I'm sort of a, a wishy-washy person who thinks that religion is important, but you know, not necessary. And it's not really, to me, it's not really provable. You can't prove there's God, of course, or anything like that. But, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of a, a mindset served you very well as author of this book because you know you take to it a real open-mindedness and a sympathy. I mean, maybe even open-mindedness to a fault. I'm thinking of the spirit medium in Shanxi who you kind of are, are quite almost indulgent she with. She was great. Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely go for her to her for a fortune telling. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I don't think it's it's um possible to describe your book as merely descriptive. It's it, it seems fairly plainly to be prescriptive. I mean there's this overall normative thrust in the book running through it is this uh, tacit support for the elevation of religion in Chinese life to a place of greater prominence that it's a solution to what you diagnose as sort of a, a, a moral or spiritual malaise. You think that's fair to say? Well, I don't think I really prescribe. And it's interesting you say that. Um, I think a lot of Chinese people do. Oh, yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And I s- I'm reflecting that. Um, I don't think the problems in China have to be solved by religion. Some people think that in okay. China. Uh, I think a lot of people think it can be solved through political means and uh, rule of law and so the, the sort of crisis of confidence, the fact you can't trust people or believe people or uh, drink the milk because it's poisoned. I mean, these are also political issues, um, of course, and even primarily. Uh, so I, I don't think that that's necessarily solved by faith, but a lot of people do. A lot of people think in in China, a lot of Chinese people think, yeah, we do need rule of law, et cetera, et cetera, but we also need a kind of moral compass because unless people feel that it's wrong to do this, um, it will still happen regardless of the laws. Now, you could have uh, classes in, in humanism that can teach that also. Uh, I know in, in Germany, where I spent a lot of time, they used to have religious classes, or they still have religious classes in school, but you can opt out of that and take a class in humanism, which teaches you kind of ethics and and ideas like that, which I think is is perfectly fine as as well, and would probably solve a lot of problems. So, Ian, I mean, um, then would it be wrong to say that you your argument is partly that the only way to address the so called spiritual vacuum in Chinese life is to fill it with gods or rituals or, or dead ancestors? Is that <laughs> is that an incorrect reading? Depends of your who's book. ancestors. Um, yeah, I don't feel 
that I, I personally don't think that. Um, and I think that some Chinese people do. And my book is about those people uh, who are pushing for religious revival, spiritual revival, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's a big phenomenon in China. I think there's a lot of, uh, it, it's something that one can't really ignore, um, regardless of how one, what one thinks about it. Uh, and I think that's sort of the approach I took, that this is a big untold story in China. And no matter where you come down on it, you could hate religion and you could still read the book because you might say, look at all these misguided people and the crazy things they're doing. Um, but it is happening in China. And I just feel it didn't get enough coverage or, or ink. And that sort of was my approach. So your argument is not actually to advocate for religion, but to say that this is a really important news uh, and current affairs story that if you want to understand China right now, you've got to understand this group of religious people. <laughs> yeah, it was purely opportunistic. Like, here's okay. a chance, here's a market. Now, I, well, you I see, I can say, go I, for that, yeah. Not to- <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a lot of empathy for the, for the people. I mean, I felt yeah. like these were people I really took to, I really liked a lot. Um, I found them extremely open and, uh, and, and really nice to, to me and spent a lot of time with me. And so I guess I have to say I liked the people I, I wrote about a lot. Yeah, that, that comes through very clearly. Uh, one thing that I couldn't help but notice is that a very, very high percentage of the Christians that you talk about in this book, I mean, you, you focus on a group called Early Rain in Chengdu. Uh, uh, the pastor's name is Wang Yi, and he himself is a former rights lawyer. But they're, they're quite closely tied to very prominent critics of the Communist Party, and even to people who one would unhesitatingly call dissidents. dissidents. Yes. Yeah, so sure. You had Ran Yunfei, mm. Tan Zuoren, even old Yu Jie makes a, a, an appearance in the book. Is this representative? Is this intended to be representative of, of typical or typical in some way of Christian groups in China? Um, or did you write about early reign for another reason? Um, let's maybe talk a little bit about Wang Yi and his congregation and then maybe answer uh, my, my well. Wang Yi was a, a rights lawyer, part mm-hmm. of the Weichun rights lawyers. Um, and Rights defenders. Uh, rights Wei defenders, Chen, yes, right, exactly, right. yeah. And so he was prominent there. He's a He lives in Chengdu, born in Chengdu. Um, and in twenty in 2005, he converted to Christianity. In fact, Yu Jie, who yeah. you mentioned, he converted him um, and I think baptized him in his uh, apartment, in, in Wang Yi's apartment. Anyway, so he comes from it from a more of a political point of view. Um, and, and this is, you know, when you're doing a book like this, I, I spent a lot of time going around to different parts of China. I thought maybe I should, I wanted to have a Christian segment. I didn't want this to be mostly about Christianity because I thought that would be pandering to audiences a little bit too much and it wouldn't be representative of the overall situation. So I wanted, but I did want to have a Christian element and I thought, well, maybe I should go to Wenzhou because this is where the, the sort of China's Jerusalem, it's a big center of Christianity or Henan, which is another big center of Christianity. And I settled on these big urban churches, which were, um, are not registered with the government, so they're not part of the three self-patriotic movement. They could be called underground or house churches, but they're too big, and this is a big trend in China. So I thought, after a while, I thought this would be, I want one of those churches. And I came across Wang Yi's church. Now, he is not the most typical urban church. and I think any time you make a choice, if you're doing a sort of ethnographic style study, you try to be as representative as possible. But at some point, the story will be about that 
community or that person, and it won't be perfectly representative. So you're right that this is a more politically oriented church. They believe in the social gospel. Uh, They help homeless shelters. They have a program to help the families of political prisoners, not political prisoners, but their families who maybe uh, have lost uh, income because the bread earner is in jail. Um, They've helped some of the kids of those families uh, go to college and things like that. Um, But, you know, he's also a guy who says Christianity is not just about political reform because I pushed him on that. I said, well, a lot of these people, a lot of Christians I met um, converted after 1989, after the failure of the Tiananmen uprising. And he then actually held almost, we had this conversation on a Friday and then on the Sunday he preached a sermon and he said, there is no relationship between Christianity and democracy. There is no relationship between Christianity and prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so I think that he is political. He has a political message. The first sermon in the, in the book is all about how the Communist Party can is, is, is secondary to, to people um, and, and shouldn't have primacy in people's lives. But um, I, overall, I don't think he is uh, anymore a political dissident. I think this is, you can see this in the fact that the church still goes. It still exists. I kept, he kept thinking he'd be arrested. And I kept thinking, I wonder if he's going to be arrested before this <laughs> book comes out. Um, but he just keeps going because I think primarily he is uh, not directly challenging the state in any way. And Ian, how common would you say, you know, uh, even if he's not directly uh, challenging the state, uh, his sermons are politically engaged some of the time. Mm, For sure. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I had uh, a guy working for me in Beijing a while back, a Chinese guy who started going to a church, a a house church, and he told me about it. And it was really uh, uh, young people. people from outside Beijing, living in Beijing, lonely. The preacher mm-hmm. guy was kind of like a Dale Carnegie positive thinking guy. And there was a little bit of Jesus involved, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would qualify, I think, as a house church. I mean, it was explicitly Christian. Um, how common would you say that kind of, you know, uh, very um, kind of fluffy, you know, absolutely no threat to the state kind of Christian house churches compared to the more politically engaged ones? I think it's quite common. Um, And I think you made a good observation that these are often white-collar people who have come to a big city in China like Beijing, but it could also be Changsha or some other city like that, maybe to go to university or to work. And they don't have friends. They don't have a community. And the church congregation is a ready-made infrastructure of people who you feel you can probably trust. They may not be trustworthy, but you feel, well, Christians should be more trustworthy at least. And so people go there. They have an immediate guanxi network of, of, of friends. And I think that's a big attraction for people, uh, especially coming into these big alienating cities. So, yes, I agree with that. Because I've also noticed the same effect here in Nashville. You know, this is a very religious place. <laughs> There's a lot of more churches than I've ever seen in my entire life. And I've noticed a lot of Chinese students here end up going to church. And it's, it's kind of a very social thing. Um, Th- that is true. It's, you know, it's true also, not just among Chinese. But um, a lot of people go to churches in the West, not so much for the sermon, but for the coffee hour afterwards. And it's probably the same at mosques or synagogues or or anywhere. It's community, right? It's community. So um, I want to push back, Ian, a little bit on what you just said about Wang Yi and that sermon that he gave the Sunday following your discussion with him. Uh, He, I mean, to me, it sounds a little bit disingenuous 
considering all the other stuff that he's talked about. And and this is a theme that he explicitly talks about and that runs through your book. This idea that rule of law uh, and other institutions of restraint that developed in the West, uh, they he, he clearly believes that these were only sort of possible in the presence of sort of a transcendental religion that, you know, uh, the, the, the rights given to individuals are God-given. God-given that they, rights, they can't yeah. flow from a document or from some man-made political institution, but they have to be natural, you know, God-given. So that, that seems to, to, to conflict with this idea. I mean, it seems like maybe even part of the project here is that they began with this concern for human rights, which, you know, requires rule of law and, you know, universal recognition of individual liberties. And so, you know, religion is sort of the vehicle for that and is seen as the only... Absolutely. You know, so many people do think that. Right. Uh, they think that Including the, Wang Yi, it seems. I think Wang Yi probably does believe that to a degree. Um, many people felt after 1989 that the revolution then, or the uprising, whatever you want to say, it failed because China didn't have a spiritual change. Because people didn't have this idea that rights were theirs, that it was something the government could give you. Uh, and many Chinese Christians believe that. They think that the reason the West is democratic is is because uh, rights are God-given, especially in the United States. Right, right. We hold all these truths to be solved. Well, Francis Fukuyama, he argues this very, very clearly. Um, he talks about you know the historical emergence of things like the rule of law as a, a function of this sort of you know long-running battle between ecclesiastical authority and secular authority in, in, in the West and the absence of anything like a, a transcendent church in China. Uh, yeah, I'm very skeptical of that argument. Uh, in the afterword, I said that this is something that Chinese Christians believe very strongly, but I think it's, and they think it's uniquely true in Christianity. I think that's wrong. I think that all religions, especially at least the ones in, in China that are practiced, have this idea of a higher form of, 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 of higher values, something that's higher than the state, and the especially tian. the idea of tian, yeah, right. heaven. Including Confucianism, you say. Right? Yeah, Confucianism right. also. Many officials stood up to the emperor. Don't forget the Confucianism was not the emperor's ideology; it was an independent ideology. Sure. And it, if the it, emperor it did didn't transcend. live up to that, you could use that to remonstrate. Um, and Chu Yuan, the original Chinese dissident, committed suicide basically because he thought his his ruler was not living up to the Confucian ideals. So, I think this is something that comes through all of these religions: the idea of divinely given justice, righteousness. Um, now, whether that has an impact on creating democracy in China. I, I doubt it. it's going to have any immediate impact. But I think that it's wrong to think that it's just Christianity that does that. So, Ian, uh, speaking of divine acts, uh, it's interesting how important the uh, Wenchuan earthquake in, in Sichuan in 2008 seems to have been for uh, the particular group of Christians that you profile. Um, Kaiser pointed out to me that another earthquake in Lisbon in 1755 seemed to have had quite the opposite effect on European intellectuals in the mid-18th century. Um, can you tell us what the significance of the Wenchuan earthquake of 2008 was to this group of uh, Christians? For many of the younger Christians, this had a similar effect to, say, to Tiananmen in 1989. The idea, in this case, it wasn't um, a massacre or carried out by the government, but it was um, it was a failure of the state to respond, or at least a belief that the state had failed to respond adequately. And the idea that the buildings, the schools, for example, were... The Dofu construction. The Dofu construction, exactly, that they were not properly built, and this was on the government, and 
there became this story, and I don't know if it's true, but it's pro- it may not be true, but it's what people believe, that the fastest groups on the scene were the faith-based charities. And people in general, just ordinary people, rushed to the scene, drove their cars and trucks from many different parts of China, and were providing relief before the government got its act together. And this became at least a, you could, I, again, I don't know, it could be sort of a myth, but this is what a lot of people felt, that this was true, and that this showed that the government wasn't able to do stuff and that faith-based communities had to do it. And then you had Tan Zorin, who was doing the, the, the really, you know, sort of the investigation into the linkage between corruption and all of these unnecessary deaths, right? Right, and he's not a Christian, for example. He did all but that he's, research. But he's quite close to... He's close to, to church, to, and his yeah. wife wa- and, and his wife daughter was supported by Wang Yi's church right. while he was in jail. Right, right, right. That's fascinating. I mean, that, that earthquake that, that uh, I referenced in, when I was talking to Jeremy, that 1755 Lisbon quake, uh, that was sort of the, the one that set off the, the Saloniers um, in, in Paris uh, on their wickedly atheistic rant. So Candide was sort of inspired by that. Um, right. Voltaire, a lot of Voltaire's writings were, were inspired by, you know, because so many of the people who died in the, the, the subsequent tsunami, especially, died in churches. They rushed into, you know, yeah. Lisbon was a, a, a was not exactly known as a den of iniquity it was uh, the most pious city in Europe probably it was full of churches and if they'd only run for the hills that's right, been okay. that's right. yeah. um, so you must have encountered some difficulties though in reporting these segments on Chengdu uh, with with the authorities I mean you were the, uh, it was uh, maybe you can also talk about their strategy to try to avoid this that this radical openness that they they used. I thought that was really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that and then about any issues you might have had with law enforcement while you were reporting? Yeah, the church very astutely recognized that foreign influence is a no-go area for anything in China, including NGOs and so on and so forth. So when they did things like support political prisoners, uh, they had a fund, and if you wanted to contribute money to this fund, you had to put your name down, and you had to be willing for the list of donors to be given to the authorities. When you joined the church, you had to give your shenfenzheng, your ID card, to be photocopied, and when you attended a church service, you had to register and sign in. And then when the police officer came by on a Monday, and I, I witnessed this myself accidentally, um, they would say, here's a list of people who attended the church. You will have their Shenfenzheng ID, you know, their ID numbers, their cell phone numbers. There's no, there's no mystery about who attended church. And if your informant or your guy f- failed to show up for church, say, we videotaped the whole service. We have a video library. It's open to the public. It's open to you also as the police officer. You can just go in there and, and see what Wang Yi preached. Wow. And so they felt that way. They get out of this underground mentality and just show that this is not an anti-government cabal. Uh, yeah, we're edgy and critical, but it's also a limited group of people. After all, it's only, a, say, 100, 200 people. I remember there was a guy who you all suspected was was an informant. or worked Everybody thought this guy was an informant, but they thought, well, might as well let him attend our meetings because <laughs> that way the government will know exactly what we're doing. And, and like all informants, he was incredibly bored with his job, it seems like. Yeah, and he was actually the <laughs> smartest guy in the room because there were many naive people in the church who kept saying political reform is around the corner just wait till the next party congress etc cetera, etc cetera. and he's like ah forget it <laughs> and he's actually right <laughs> hey cynical listeners are you all getting good sleep because that is really important can't say enough about how important it is sleep is the great panacea indeed even insomniacs like me who have phone calls with beijing at 2 a.m my time need to get good sleep which is why we are delighted to tell you about our new Supporter, Casper. 
Casper, indeed. Casper is the mattress company that is revolutionizing an industry that's long been dominated by just a few big overpriced brands. Uh, Casper is doing this by selling only online with free shipping to your door in a how-did-they-do-that-sized box. Full disclosure. Kaiser and I are still waiting for Casper to actually send us their mattresses. Uh-huh. So, Casper, if you're listening, please uh, uh, put it in priority mail. Uh, but we are looking forward to receiving the mattresses after checking out the huge numbers of satisfied reviews online. And we're not kidding. You can actually check out the satisfied reviews online. I did not actually know that people could get so excited by a mattress. Neither did I, but I am totally psyched to see why. I'm really very, very excited to try memory foam uh, for a mattress. I've been doing the memory foam pillow and it's just been terrific. Uh, so please check out Casper, our new sponsor. Go to www.casper.com slash subchina and use the promo code subchina. That's S-U-P China, all one word for 50 bucks off your purchase of a Casper mattress. If you sleep well, dear listener, you will be happy. If you buy a Casper mattress, our sponsor will be happy. And so will we. Yes, we will be. And on the off chance that you don't like your Casper mattress, after a 100-day money-back guarantee period, you can just return it for free, including pickup. No springs attached. See what they did there? (laughs) Now on with the show. So, uh, Ian, in one of the later chapters on Chengdu, you visit uh, another pastor who has fully embraced doctrinaire Calvinism. And you talk with a German woman who'd spent 20 years or so doing missionary work in Chengdu and uh, how so many of the Chinese Christians she'd worked with have drifted towards Calvinism and other very strict Protestant sects. Um, And it's funny because, I mean, having grown up in apartheid South Africa, where the state religion more or less was this kind of Calvinistic Dutch Christianity, um, you know, specially mutated for South Africa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have my attitude about this kind of thing. But can you tell us about her, um, uh, about the German uh, woman doing missionary work, and why you think this shift towards denominations in China has taken place? I mean, she was kind of tragic and disillusioned, huh? I, I she was kind of tragic. She went there starting almost 20, yeah, 20 years ago after Tiananmen, and she preached a non-hierarchical form of Christianity. She had a little ukulele that she took to the pa- park and they'd sing songs and she taught, uh, she converted a number of the important uh, Christians, not Wang Yi, but some of the others in Chengdu. And yet they all gravitated toward this hierarchical, super organized form of Christianity. And her partner, this guy Manfred, who was kind of new to the scene, he said, why do they do this? And why does this all uh, replicate the Chinese political system. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. That yeah. because Wang Yi's church, for example, is not de- democratic, and they don't really have they have so they have a system of Zhanglao or presbyters, mm-hmm. and these are sort of like a few wise people who lead the church. This is pr- where Presbyterianism comes from, Calvinism, etc. So you have these uh, elders or these wise people who sort of lead the church, and then they hire a pastor who is then the spiritual guide. In Wang Yi's case, there had been three, they kicked one out because he was too liberal. His wife wanted to preach, and they said, oh, women can't preach in our church. She had been to, to, to um, she was trained in, like, She was divinity. trained, and, and he said, no, you're allowing Satan into the church if you allow this, and so... There Lest anyone up, think that they're actually political progressives, let's 
Splitzer. No, right. No, so in some ways, it's a real contradiction, right? In right. some ways, they're supporting these political prisoners. They're helping homeless people. But they're also hardcore, uh, in many ways, authoritarian. Uh, and, and he said several times, the church is not a democracy. It's not the same as society. Um, it's got to be led by wise people, which could be the Confucian argument for how China should be run. So there was a lot of interesting uh, things that if you look at the at how the churches were actually run. And this is an issue in China in general, not just in churches, but in all these religious organizations. They tend to, not surprisingly, reflect the society around them. Right. And uh, I remember talking to a couple of these church people. I said, well, you know, churches don't have to be organized like this. You can actually have elections. All the people in the congregation can vote on a board of directors. You can vote on a pastor. A lot of churches do this in the West, but they were, oh, that won't work in China. It'll be too chaotic. So you, you try to spiritually spiritually pollute a Chinese church, Ian. Yeah, I was trying to spread democracy. Well, the whole business of missionaries, I mean, missionaries carry an awful lot of historical baggage when it comes to China. Uh, and many of the individuals that you spoke to for the book have said that they had very strong misgivings about working too closely with foreigners, with any foreign organizations, it tends to draw unwanted attention, the attention of authorities, uh, who, as you say, you know, already kind of nurture prejudices against Christianity for its its original foreignness, right? Now, from the perspective of Chinese authorities, though, isn't it pretty easy to see why they see these so-called house or underground churches as a threat? I mean, for their independence as like sort of one of the only places where civil society actually exists, uh, for their ties that you, you know, quite clearly point out to dissidents and to movements like the New Citizens Movement and uh, ideas like universal rights and their, you know, their, their essential foreignness. I'm, it, it, it seems like that would be where I would be on the lookout for fifth columnists, right? Uh, yeah, I think the government all, I guess you could f- first say that almost all religions have foreign ties of some sort, except sure, maybe sure, Taoism. But I would say Protestantism is of special concern because it's growing so quickly in the Han majority. Uh, Islam, for example, has a lot of foreign ties, the global Ummah, but it's by and large limited to a smaller number of believers, 20-odd million, and among minority groups, not the Han majority that really runs China. Right. I think a lot of people in the government say find that disturbing. And plus, even though churches like Early Reign reject foreign money, they don't want foreign missionaries coming in to help them, but they do get a lot of know-how and ideas and influence from abroad. They can get books that are translated by Chinese-American Christians a lot of the time, or for Hong Kong or Taiwan, download this off the internet, you know, PDF versions of books, and they have textbooks for their seminaries. A lot of this comes from abroad. And, and you point out that they do want to feel like they are part of a global Christian movement or a global Christian community, not isolated as Chinese Christians, right? Right. Um, They all want to feel part of the global world. In fact, a lot of religions are like this. Religion often has a globalizing component because you feel part of a bigger body of people. So Muslims think we're part of the global Mm. Ummah. Catholics think we're part of the global Catholic Church. Even Buddhists have this. There's World Buddhist Associations and Chinese abbots and and priests, uh, monks rather, go down to Thailand, even though it's a different kind of Buddhism and so on and so forth. So there is this idea. It's quite attractive to a lot of people. There's something big than just my country, etc. Right. Uh, but the government has problems with that. And I think, yes, with Protestantism, it is of special concern. 
And what you talk a, a fair bit about the Qigong craze of the 80s and 90s. And I mean, I remember my first year in China in 1995 in parks in Beijing, seeing people doing all kinds of odd meditations and, uh, you know, ho- hocus pocus in my uh, view. I used to call them <laughs> crackpots in parks. It's um, the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Um, and I, I guess that uh, ended uh, in uh, 1999 with the crackdown on, on Falun Gong. Um, yeah. Can you give our listeners the quick version of the rise and fall of Qigong in China? Qigong is also a neologism. It's a made-up word, a new word that was formed in the 1950s when they were trying to come up with a description for these kind of physical cultivation practices in Chinese religion or society, uh, similar to yoga, say, in India, um, but with more meditation and more emphasis on breathing rather than on physical poses. Uh, And they came up with this idea of Qigong. Um, It was seen as a kind of a healing, uh, something that would be, that was part of the traditional Chinese medicine complex. The government uh, did not oppose it. They thought if this is a cheap way where we can keep people healthy, we're pragmatists in the sense, let's go for it. It was then banned, though, as a quasi, because it does have this quasi-spiritual component to it. It was banned in the Cultural Revolution. But by the end of the Cultural Revolution, even before Mao's death, there were people bringing it back, um, especially people were teaching it in parks. And it went from being this narrow medical technique similar to acupuncture or cupping or massage into this mass movement in Chinese parks where people were doing this stuff. And there's a really excellent uh, sociological, anthropological study by Nancy Chun called Breathing Spaces. Mm. It came out about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And she calls this and, and or cites people saying this is a kind of release almost after the Cultural Revolution, all this suppression of people. And here you could go out in the parks. It's a personal thing you're doing, but you're doing it in a mass open environment. And yeah, there were the craziest things. As Jeremy said, people are hugging trees, uh, burping, walking backwards, you know, shaking uncontrollably. And they all had their own gong, their own <laughs> practice uh, that justified this. And as Can it you- went, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you know, there's a fairly famous photo of a bunch of people with uh, literally tin pot helmets. Uh, do you know anything about that? Can you talk about that? I've seen that picture. I'm not exactly sure. I think they were getting energy forces or something from <laughs> Planet Claire or something. Sent down <laughs> Planet Claire. But, uh, Planet Claire has pink air. Yeah, B-52s. But... So this got more, it got more and more organized. As we go into the 1990s, there began to be groups that some were very commercially oriented. And some of the leaders, these dasher, these grandmasters began writing tracts and pamphlets. And they often had a moralizing message, a kind of popular fundamentalism of don't, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, etc., etc. Live a clean life. And the most militant of them was Falun Gong. Right. And then when Falun Gong had its uh, conflict with the government, government in 99 and then was banned and there was a crackdown, all of these groups got kind of wiped out. But they have come back in recent years under different names and different guises. In the early 1990s, I would regularly encounter these so-called Qigong masters uh, because I was running around with, you know, a bunch of artists and they had connections to these people, some of whom were already quite fabulously wealthy. It was was very clear. Uh, And they had close government connections. Uh, They were, you know, some of them were said to be, you know, considered national assets or defense assets and and things like this, but uh, quite silly. But invariably, they had the same 
number of tricks. Apparently, Qigong was very good at uh, allowing you to chew up a business card and then reproduce the intact card uh, to 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 uh, shake a medicine bottle that had an apparently solid bottom and have a pill come out. David Copperfield to explain. Right, no, it was weird. It was just no. It was it was always the same set of tricks. Yeah, another one was reading a book with your ear. You exactly, hold the book right, up right, to right, your right. ear, and, and then, then you. Could, I've read it. And right, of course, right. you may have read it ahead of time. And uh, it just, was uh, unbelievable. I mean, uh, these, these were just so obvious. I mean, they were they were, they were you know tricks that you, you could learn out of a book. Right? But even Tsinghua University had these experiments where they proved or claimed to prove that you could that chi was emitted from your hand and they said we've measured it with electromagnetic particles or something and all of this stuff was part of this um, yeah you could say charlatanry uh, yeah. or whatever um, that accompanies all kinds of movements like this and uh, Jeremy do you remember who James Randi is do you remember this guy? The Amazing Randy. He's this uh, illusionist, an American magician uh, who no. was a big debunker. He was sort of, you know, so what was what was, uh, what was that guy's? Samanan. Samanan, exactly. Yeah. Sort of the American Samanan. Well, uh, right, and, and these groups they, they, they hauled these guys out after after ninety nine to yeah. yeah really when they, when I say these these things have come back the the practice the physical practice has come back but the uh, the belief in supernatural or super yeah supernatural abilities to uh-huh. gongnang that is now is still uh, banned not, yeah still banned okay, okay. Uh, um and despite all the hocus pocus I mean the the event that effectively started as I understand it the the crackdown on Falun Gong was when in ninety nine they managed to gather several thousand people outside Zhongnanhai to uh, protest uh, I was the there, central yeah. government. Um, so uh, w- would you agree that that was the thing that basically, you know, put the nail in the coffin of Falun Gong as an organization that could organize in, in China itself? Uh, Absolutely. Above, no, I, the government the government freaked out. Uh, I mean, how could these people, I think the government overestimated their power and organizational strength because afterwards, the vast majority of Falun Gong followers uh, left the group and just moved on to other things. And many uh, became Buddhists or, or something else or just dropped it entirely. But they thought, my God, what our, our public security bureau didn't know anything about this. These guys must be even better organized than the public security <laughs> bureau and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, they had this uh, sort opened these offices, Office 610, after the date June 10th when when it was founded, to fight against cults. And I think today you can often still see, if you go to government offices, sometimes you'll see outside a door, Office 610, and that's where the anti-cult activities are coordinated. Uh, so that was the that was that uh, big rupture in 99. But it didn't really affect the overall trend, actually. Uh, one passage in your book that really caught my attention is that you, you talk about the succession of post-Mao leaders who are all, of course, nominally atheist, as a good party member should be, uh, but they're, they, they have these sort of secret attitudes toward religion. About Jiang Zemin, for example, uh, you, you have you cite photos of him and his wife burning incense, or he's carrying incense, he's holding incense at a Buddhist temple, Wen Jiabao, and his use in speeches of the word I in a kind of Christian sort of universal love your brother sense. Although I'm sure Yu Jie probably wouldn't agree that that was Christian. It's not adequate for him, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I think no, I remember Yu Jie wrote that that book on uh, on, on Wen Jiabao, just calling him like the the, the greatest China's actor, best China's actor. best actor. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, he hated him. He had a real hard on for for yeah. Well, I think people often want to believe that their leaders 
share traits. And so we like to, if you're religious, then you like to think, oh, our, my leader is also um, religious or has an affinity toward my faith. I don't think any of this is provable. I don't think Xi Jinping is a closet Buddhist or, or, or whatever. I do think that he and others, especially, but especially Xi, sees religion or some religions in certain contexts as useful for the state. And that's a bit of a change. Uh, it was they've dropped these terms like superstition and they've embraced some cultural practices or quasi-religious spiritual practices that were banned in the past by simply redefining them as culture, as traditional Chinese culture and and even subsidizing them. So that's a a huge change uh, that the government has done. I don't think it proves, and I'm sure Xi Jinping is not a religious person. I, I have a hard time believing. I don't think you could become general secretary of the Communist Party. Your enemies would find out and they would do you in and with that kind of knowledge. But I mean, the the, the reason I you, you mentioned Xi Jinping in connection with Buddhism is because of of his connection to a Zen Buddhist master named Shi Youming uh, in the city of Jinding in in Hebei Province, where yeah, they where formed a, a real. I would say pragmatic alliance to rebuild the temples um, and there is some evidence that he was at least very interested in this and that mm-hmm. his father was also in charge of religious affairs for the party for a while when they issued for example the famous document 19 that restarted Chinese religious life after the cultural revolution and Xi Zhongshun so Xi's father mm-hmm. was uh, wrote the obituary for the Panchen Lama and he was head of this revolutionary base area in northwestern China where there were a lot of Tibet and Muslims, and he had a fairly tolerant uh, a- policy toward them at the time. So people thought that because Xi Jinping was like that, Xi Jinping would, you know, necessarily right. be like that. Again, harder to prove, but certainly in his first posting in the early 1980s in this small city, which is south of Beijing, just north of Shijiazhuang, a beautiful little city that's worth visiting, Zhengding, um, that he took religion under his wing. And at a time, nowadays, this wouldn't be very surprising. Nowadays, all kinds of leaders across China do this, rebuild temples and show up at at temples to support things. But back then, it was an edgier move. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that shows, that could be seen as a template for what has happened since then. Interesting. uh, In terms of what has happened since then, I mean, um, you know, the the apparent warming of the party to uh, at least some types of religion, uh, tolerating or even promoting traditional religion. How much of this do you say is a cynical exercise in social control? <laughs> um, I'd say a lot of it is, if not all of it. I, I don't. No, that's that. comforting that you still. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a cynic. No, uh, I, I think the government sees this as something useful. They they recognize that many Chinese feel that there's a moral malaise or there's a lack of values in society. They got the message, um, and they want to promote things that they think will not threaten their rule. So they think uh, traditional religions, that's our Chinese religions, they're less threatening. Um, They fit into hierarchical political structures better. Whether that's true or not is debatable, but this is, I think, probably underlying some of their ideas. And so let's support it. Let's even subsidize some of it. Uh, As opposed to Islam and Christianity, which they still see as foreign, by and large. 
Uh, so early on, you talk about how reformers and revolutionaries, even even before the communists came to power, were already smashing city temples, and that even Sun Yat-sen, you know, who's the father of the revolution, uh, in an early act of youthful rebellion, smashed all the statues in his family's or his city's um, hometown temple. Uh, you don't really get too too deeply though into why it was that the religious world you came to be so, I mean, I think it's fair to say roundly rejected by the majority of, of intellectuals. I'm talking about the new culture movement, the May 4th intellectuals. Um, you know, the, who's, these are these are the, this great firmament of, of thinkers who were deeply convinced of the need for China to, to reform at its roots, who saw religion as basically uh, holding a China fetter, back. Right, really holding China back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that it, it, isn't it a case that, that China faced in the 19th and 20th century not just a threat to its soul or its souls, but to its very body, right? And there was this this real urgency. Um, you, know, you know, what was geomancy or the five-phase yin-yang theory going to do for, for China? I mean, it was just sort of inculcating this kind of slavish and hierarchical thinking. And, you know, of course, you had other sects like the, the Taipings, your, your favorite, uh, who, who, you know, launched a bloody civil war that killed 20 million people and the boxers you know who who by their anti-foreign actions had actually in, you know brought eight for imperialist armies into Beijing and and, and raised the place yeah. uh, so you know you I, surely you can you can understand I, mean, I I would add to this that, that betrayal that was handed to them at Versailles by the that most pious man Woodrow Wilson right, uh, right. so I'm um, surely well, no, I think this was part of a crisis of confidence in Chinese civilization that started with the Opium Wars, that it grew throughout the 19th century, so that even before Sun Yat-sen, you had people like Kang Youwei in the Hundred Days of Reform in 1898, who proposed converting temples into schools, Miao Gai Xiao. And so that idea was that China needed literacy, and, and there, most people were illiterate. And so he thought, look, we've got all these temples, we've got way too many of these things, let's convert them into schools, let's get the population educated, um, and this just picked up pace as China's problems and humiliations con- continued on through the 20th century. And the measures became ever more radical, um, including the starting, you know, continuing up through the Republican era. We often think the Republic of China, Chiang Kai-shek, would be pro-religion or was traditional or something. But the KMT was part of this May 4th tradition as well. And they had their new life movement and also tried to destroy temples and so on and so forth. So it, it definitely predated the communists. And it was part of this overall feeling that traditional Chinese civilization, including or especially including the political religious system that ran China, was at the heart of China's problems. I'd also just note that this was not unique to China. It was especially strong in China because of the troubles that China faced. But countries like or or empires like the Ottoman Empire, when it collapsed, they also got rid of the caliphate, who was the ruler of Muslims. They converted some mosques into museums. The Ba'ath Party, after the Second World War, was a radically secularizing Yeah, socialist, right. Yeah, and, and they think religion is holding us back. Religion is dulling us to 
progress and so on and so forth. We need to get rid of all this mumbo jumbo and move forward. And this is a, t- a typical modernizing idea. And it just became very, very strongly embraced by China's elites and led to this massive wave of temple destruction and anti-religious campaigns. And you think that the the, the way back now is to, I mean, it, it strikes me as odd that I'm the China that I know. People are wrestling with sort of our post-human existence. I was telling you last night when we were having dinner that I had the odd experience of reading you at the same time I was reading this book by a professor at Hebrew University named Yuval Harari. And he's written a book called Homo Deus. It's basically about the advent of technologies that are going to, I think he, he, he thinks, really disrupt our, our basic, you know, liberal humanist worldview uh, th- th- about the, the valorization of the, the self, that we're going to sort of transcend self when we have these artificial systems, these unconscious, uh, these non-conscious artificial intelligent systems that know ourselves better than we know ourselves. And we're going to sort of defer a lot of, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all very complicated and I'll talk about it. It's going to be my recommendation for the week, but I feel like it's um, it, it, the China that I know, the Chinese people that I, I deal with quite regularly, you know, they're more thinking about these questions. Uh, they're, they're looking at, you know, uh, this is this country, which I think is, 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 is fascinating because it does embrace futurism so kind of gladly and without trepidation or without irony. That's, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think only... Some people want to go back to the past. Uh Some people Uh wish they could make whole the destruction of the past 150 years, that somehow we could go back and rebuild all the temples and put everything back the way it was before. I think probably even those people realize that's not possible and that religious life has changed. You don't, Chinese religious life was primarily communal. Everybody did this together. We were in this village. We all worshiped at this temple. That will never come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are now living in cities for one thing. They're atomized just like we're all atomized. We are live in our little apartments and we go to work and we don't interact with people. Our neighbors don't even know who our neighbors are sometimes. So religious life becomes increasingly personal and there are some communal things that people do, uh, but it's not like it was it in the past. It seems like those communal things that people do are the things of great value though. I mean, that's what I, what I loved when I was reading about these uh, pilgrimage groups is, is that obvious sense of community, how all these 13 pilgrimage associations come together because of the death of this one woman, all because, you know, it's, there is that, I mean, it's kind of a a beautiful reconstruction of a lost idea of community, right? Yeah, but of course, this will. This is only part of the story, and and there's another thread in my book, which are internal cultivation, meditation practices, and I think that's also probably what most upwardly mobile urban people follow if they're interested in traditional Chinese practices. This is internal alchemy. It's called Nei Dan. It's a kind of Taoist meditation practice. Uh, I spend time with these groups in Beijing and then go with them to their big meeting once a year, a retreat in these caves uh, in southern China. So are your cinnabar fields well cultivated now? I don't know. I'm, I'm getting my... I was going to say, I mean, your belly. ability to read that audio book after that, I mean, that must attest to your Breathing control scum. of your chi. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I that's <laughs> 
<laughs> but I think that's more, maybe more typical. Those kind of things are more typical for the future. Of, of, so it's of basically China. like Californian yuppies going to sweat lodges. <laughs> there are, there's a lot of that. And we probably all know people who are interested in yoga in China sure. or, or Gandhiism. I know somebody who's translated Gandhi's works and wears a Gandhi t-shirt and thinks he's the greatest guy and has Gandhi pictures all around. There's a sort of quasi, he's sort of a hero, but he's almost like a quasi. It's, it's interesting to look at education. The I, I did a story a couple of years ago on Waldorf schools, which are based oh, on yeah, this yeah, yeah. theosophy, this kind of wild New Age, early 20th century ideals around this uh, German mystic called Rudolf Steiner. Uh, these schools are, are really popular. And some people, for some people, it's just a better kind of education for their kids. But many of them then meet and study his works and even have seances. Mm. And so wow. you see this broad that range. Is that is from Jim That is from Bring back the guy from the dead. Hey, Ian, uh, we, I mean, we could go on for another hour with this. So this is just great. I mean, I haven't used half my questions, but I, I am, I'm really so glad uh, that you were able to come here in person. And I hope I can interest you in some excellent local barbecue um, uh, if we do have time. But stick around, though. Uh, make some recommendations with us. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so before we get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChinaNews and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news and if you like the cynical podcast by all means leave us a positive review on the apple itunes store or on google play or wherever it is that you go to review apps i know that many of you have done this and it, it it really means a lot to us and really helps people to discover the podcast so on to recommendations jeremy what do you have for us today so a few months ago, I had the pleasure of editing and publishing on subchina.com a piece by the Dutch journalist uh, Tabitha Spielman about Chinese creative nonfiction. And there's something of a boom, both in terms of business selling uh, subscriptions or individual articles uh, on the internet, but also in the number of journalists who are turning to long-form narratives. And Tabitha has now started a, a regular newsletter, email newsletter called Changpian, uh, about Chinese long form uh, and creative nonfiction. And she puts little summaries of uh, the articles and then some excerpts in Chinese. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's a great resource. Um, and I'll put the URL up, uh, but it's tinyletter.com slash Tabitha Spielman. Wow, that sounds great. Thanks. I've, I know that that's a really useful uh, newsletter that she has. It's great. I have not actually read it before. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll have to get on that. Ian, what about you? What do you have for us? Well, I'm divided. I want to... You can do two then. Okay, I'll do two. One is a book that came out around 2012, I think, by Ross Doutat. D-O-U-T-H-A-T. He's a columnist for the New York Times. And it's called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And he describes the downfall of the mainline religious communities in the United States and the rise of sort of wacky, crazy uh, religious groups that have filled the void and how this explains a lot of problems in American society. So... That's a pretty interesting book, even if you think of the current political context, because of the people who take such extreme views of Christianity. And for them, it's this one little thing that matters. And if Trump will give them that, they'll vote for him, even though he's clearly like one of the least Christian people sort of imaginable. Right. So that, that book I found is uh, really useful, just rereading it now. The other one is I put a 
uh, a 12 or 13 minute video on YouTube about this physical practice, kind of like Qigong, called Jin Gang Gong. And I will put the URL on your website if you want. And it is a kind of a, it's a really interesting way, something like Tai Chi. Um, it's growing in popularity in China. A lot of people are doing it. It's uh, done by a Taoist priest. He's 97 years old, and the video was made a few years ago. He subsequently died um, at, at 101. Um, and so if you're trying to get an idea of what some of this looks like nowadays, uh, you can see this YouTube video and uh, imitate it, follow it if you want. It's kind of fun. Sounds great. Sounds great. There you go again, trying to spiritually pollute it. the masses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Certainly, bad religion is something I'll want to read. Uh, mine again is uh, this this book Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, it is a really ambitious, huge book. Uh, at its heart, it's really kind of a meditation on you know the challenges that our species is going to face because of the the massive technological advances that was you know chiefly genetic engineering and artificial intelligence um they're going to really allow us to kind of transcend our present humanity um through bionics and through you know cognitive enhancements and so forth he basically argues these technologies are are actually going to to challenge the fundamental assumptions of of liberal humanism uh you know this sanctity of the individual and her choices and the, the fundamental equality of all individuals, all, all that good stuff. You know, he, he posits that this sort of dataist algorithmic worldview has now is now really kind of prevalent, at least in Silicon Valley, and that these new very highly intelligent systems are going to be able to deliver the things that we want, health and happiness and longevity and uh, and um, self-knowledge and power better than, than humans have been able to do it themselves. Um, they're going to really just literally know us better than we know ourselves. And um, I think that, you know, they're the genie's out of the bottle. These are pretty urgent issues I think we should really be all thinking about. And, yeah, again, I think what, what was strange is the juxtaposition of reading you, Ian. Uh, you know, his, his prose is very different. Yours is so lovely and crafted, and his is just sort of almost meant to shock and anger. <laughs> it's very, very amusing, uh, the, the, the contrapuntal thing going that sounds on sounds great yeah uh, check book. it out it's it's an easy read and it's quite humorous uh, and, and and provoking uh anyway i think i actually may have kind of flicked at that in an early recommendation but i i, I that was before i had really sunk my teeth and i've just finished it uh it's quite good ian thank you one more time for for, for coming by uh it's so great to have you here in in, in durham Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. It's nice to visit this part of the country. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? We're going to have to get over to Nashville next time, right, Jeremy? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks to An La Chang and Sar- Saraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Uh, visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.